Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. This is the Finding Backcountry Podcast, episode number 47. And this episode will be unlike any other that I've ever recorded uh, for the simple fact that this is my first solo episode. So I'm thinking in honor of a solo uh, episode, I'm going to have a t-shirt or a hat made like Timbernet Solo Hunter brand, but it's going to be Solo P-D-C-S-T-R for podcaster. And that was a terrible idea that it just got killed, but you get the point solo, uh, solo podcasting. I, you know, I'm, I actually didn't ever plan on making this a solo podcast and it's not going to be other than maybe this, you know, a couple episodes here and there. Uh, this is just the way that this one worked out. And so hopefully, first of all, hopefully I don't bore you. Second of all, hopefully I can talk to myself long enough uh, to make a decent episode that's uh, still valuable and worth listening to. You know, I've heard other guys go through solo podcasts before and sometimes without having a guest there, I think to keep you on track of what questions or topics you want to stay on, it's just for some reason it seems like it's easier for them to ramble or get off get off track and not really be talking about anything so keep me on track uh let me know please let me know feedback on this one um you know like i said earlier this is just the way that this one worked out um i feel like i've had you know a couple of my friends and my brother and and guys like that on enough and we're just slammed in the middle of hunting season that they were running, doing their own thing. Uh, you know, in fact, Corey, Corey was just up, Corey and Jason were just up in Utah, uh, killing a, an awesome buck there. Uh, Corey's biggest buck to date. And one that I can, I can assure you that he's worked, uh, this whole experience of his coming from Iowa and moving out West and getting into hunting. And, you know, it's been a five or six or whatever year quest. Um, I can assure you that that was an accumulation of a ton of work and just, you know, hard work from a guy that, uh, that's just wanted that for a long time. Uh, not that it's all about, you know, killing a big buck or anything like that, but, uh, it's just nice when you can see it pay off and you can see how happy it made him. So Anyway, what I want to do here, um, this will maybe be one of the shorter podcasts. My podcasts with guests typically typically go over an hour unless they have some sort of time restraint. Um, and so this one, I'm guessing that this one will go much shorter than an hour. It will either be 20 minutes or I'll ramble on and go for, you know, two hours and 20 minutes. So hopefully it's only 20 minutes and I stay to the point. The first thing that I want to do here is I'm going to go through a breakdown uh, recap of our Nevada backcountry deer hunt where spoiler alert, we all struck out and did not bring anything home, <clears throat> go through kind of just a brief timeline of how that, uh, eight or nine day hunt went. And then, um, along with that, I came up with some excuses, uh, excuses that, you know, as we started uh, talking about that hunt afterwards, just excuses that, you know, that we we were bringing up for ourselves. And then it got us thinking, you know, it's kind of funny that in the hunting industry, um, all these excuses uh, that, that people feel like they, they maybe have to bring up or they like to bring up to make themselves feel better or whatever. And, and again, we're just pointing the finger back at ourselves because 
Um, half of these are from our hunt, but just thought that that might be fun to talk about. And then some lessons that, uh, that I just personally jotted down that I learned from this particular hunt, because there's always something to be picked up uh, from each hunt, multiple things that you can pick up from each hunt. Um, I jotted down just some gear, uh, gear notes, some things that uh, stood out to me. And then just give you a brief, uh, a brief rundown of what's coming up this, uh, this next week or this weekend heading out on my antelope hunt here in Nevada with a rifle to get redemption. So some poor antelope is going to pay for all the pain and misery that the mule deer caused us in the backcountry. So first, anyway, that's kind of a rundown of what I had in mind. Um, and so we'll see how it goes. The, uh, the Nevada hunt, <clears throat> pretty standard, pretty typical for us because we've been on this hunt uh, multiple times and we've also taken pack llamas in before on this and so it wasn't anything out of the ordinary um, I felt like logistically most of that went off without a hitch um, so we showed up uh, a day and a half early which we like to do and started hiking in the plan was to get maybe halfway in uh, on a 10 mile hike um, the first thing that uh, really kind of caught me off guard and caught us off guard. We had a um, a friend along, Nick uh, Nick Moore, that was filming for us, uh, who did awesome. But he ran into some altitude sickness, and you know that's something that you hear about, but you think, well, you know, I I always thought, man, maybe it's. You know, maybe it's just guys that aren't in shape or, you know, I don't know, because for me, it never, it never, uh, I never had a problem with it. And, you know, it's not like I live at 7,000 feet and am hunting, you know, at 10,000 feet. You know, I live down in the desert at, you know, 1,800 feet or whatever it is here and can not spend a, you know, basically not spend any time, you know, above five or 6,000 feet all summer and hike, hike to Nevada and go up above 10,000 feet or Colorado. I've done that before. And it's just not a problem. I think it's, it's just kind of an individual thing with everyone's body. But anyway, um, Nick ran into some altitude sickness on the hike in. And so that slowed us down. We, you know, where we thought we were going to get two or three, uh, more miles. We, we had to cut it short, which ended up being fine because on this particular hunt, um, one of my good friends, uh, South Cox, was uh, hunting the same tag, and we've uh, chatted back and forth for a couple of years because we kind of understand that we hunt the same general area, and so we got to um, anyway. He he was coming along and had a really special guest with him, um, Larry Jones, who you know, is just an absolute living, living legend as is South. And we talked about this on, on the podcast with South, uh, those two hunting together. But anyway, it was really cool because we actually got to share, they, they kind of had the same plan. And so we actually got to share a camp, um, with them the, the first night of the hike in, because we ended up kind of stopping at the same place and, and South and those guys have, uh, using pack llamas. And so just aside from just talking to him and, and meeting Larry at the trailhead. Um, it was really <clears throat> kind of a, you know, kind of just a, a pinnacle moment in any bow hunter's career, I guess, to be able to just share a camp, even just briefly, uh, that night with a guy like Larry Jones and South Cox. So that's what we ended up doing. And then they, you know, they packed up first thing in the morning and, and went their way. And, uh, we, we packed up and went our way and, uh, you know, they ended up having a great hunt. South killed a nice buck like he always does. But anyway, we finally got up the next day uh, to where we were going. And, you know, the first thing that we started noticing, this is going to tie into the excuses that we had, is that there was just, there was more hunters in this particular area than I've seen in the past four years that I've hunted this combined. Um, and that's that's not an excuse. It's just a fact. Um we ended up counting, I think, 17 
uh, different hunters that came through, you know, our little basin right there, our little ridge that we hunt on uh, within the eight or nine days. And so that was something that we had never had to deal with. Um, we usually have the, that place to ourselves. And so, you know, it just, it got us thinking like, what, what do you do there? Um, you know, because hunting around hunters is nothing new to us. Um, it's, it's kind of why we went into the back country though, in the first place. And so, you know, wh what do you do there? Do you, um, pull out and try to go find a new area in the middle of a hunt? We talked about that. Um, you know, my brother was coming halfway through, uh, our hunt, you know, he was coming in two or three days after us. And so, man, do we, do we just pick up camp and head somewhere else? Um, somewhere that we've, you know, never scouted anywhere else before. And we decided that that wouldn't be a real good idea this year. And that if we, if we were going to make a change that it would be better to, you know, be prepared, scout it out next summer and then, you know, move our camp for the hunt next year. So, but that is just interesting. Um, you know, the opening morning, I'll give you an example, opening morning, um, the biggest buck, there's, there's one basin that we can always find. It seems like we always find a, a good, uh, mature buck in, and this year was no different. We, you know, the night, the day before the night before the opener, we glassed him up, put him to bed. Everything was great. Opening morning, woke up. He was a hundred yards from where we left him. We take off, uh, Corey was first up. We take off on our stock and to get to where we were dropping into the basin, we had to swing around a, a little ridge or a little peak and we run into other hunters. And again, this has never really happened to us before back there. And so we got talking to them and they of course were watching the same buck across the, the canyon. And, um, we ended up deferring to them. They, they acted like they had packed in before us and you know, that they were here before us. And so it seemed like you know, we're not, we're just not looking to combat hunt. And so we, we kind of deferred to them and backed out for that day, went and hunted some other basins, didn't have any luck. And anyway, came back and we, we thought that, um, we had spotted that buck again, uh, briefly after they had maybe passed through the country and we thought all was well spent the next, uh, you know, week basically looking into this basin, uh, trying to relocate this buck. And he just wasn't, he would not show back up and not show back up. Well, fast forward to, you know, seven or eight days into the hunt, we ran into a couple guys that were friends with the guys who we deferred to. And hopefully that's making sense. Everyone's following me, following along there, but they, um, they let us know that, Oh yeah, our buddies, you know, they messaged us and let us know that they had uh, arrowed a, a big typical four point on like day two of the hunt. And so, <laughs> it's kind of deflating where you've been waking up, uh, looking into some base and just knowing that that buck's going to be back in there, that he's going to show himself, um, and that you're going to have another chance at him and he keeps not showing up and then you find out why. So anyway, dealing with hunters, that was different. Um, you know, let's see what other points we want to make here. Um, filming hunts, you know, this was, this wasn't the first hunt that we had a cameraman follow us around on. Um, so not completely new territory, but I'll just say, you know, it's fun to sit and watch YouTube videos and think, man, you know, that's going to be us or we need to start filming our hunts. And, and we've done this. It's the, it's probably our biggest weakness um, as far as like content production is, you know, we do pretty well with, with photographs and we're doing good with this podcast and all that kind of stuff. And we write some blog posts, but for us, it's been tough to go through the whole process of filming, getting a hunt edited and then, and then put it up <laughs> partly because when we film hunts, we don't kill anything. So, um, you know, we can't do it when the pressure's on, but, um, it just, it's just interesting, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big bite to chew off and just understand what, uh, you know, what you're getting into when you film, when you bring a camera along to film hunts, you know, for us, we've battled the advice that I would give is, you know, understand that if you're going to be a group or a team or a whatever, um, cliche hunting group, like we are, um, somebody's going to not be hunting, you know? And that's what we battled for years and years and years was we had these nice cameras and we were going to film hunts and it would always make it, um, you know, one and a half days into the hunt. And then it was like, well, you know, so-and-so 
needs to go fill their tag and they realize that they're just wasting time and you know while we're not killing the other guy's not killing anything and so anyway that's why we kind of started bringing these cameramen along just to document what we're doing and you know and it's still even even with all of us having our tags to hunt you know when there's a group it's like well is the camera guy gonna follow this guy is he gonna are you gonna not hunt today and just sit and watch you know should you just go out and hunt while he while the camera guy's filming you know should i go hunt while the camera guy's filming Corey and say hey if i end up killing something i end up killing something and it wasn't on film or you know is it like i've heard guys say like you know that film hunts if it didn't happen on film it doesn't happen and so you get the hunt on the kill on film at all cost and it's just it's just a lot to it's just a lot to chew off. And my advice after having gone through it for a couple of years and, um, is make sure that you or your group or whatever you're going to call yourselves is at a maturity level, uh, to handle that, you know? And, and what I mean by that is you just, you know, are you the type of people that can all go hunt your own hunt for a week at a time and not talk to each other and not see each other other than maybe, you know, walking back into camp under the light of a headlamp, um, and just recap what you did that day. Or are you the type that, well, if so-and-so is going on a stock, I want to be looking through the spotter and watching and helping. I have to give him signals because, you know, he can't, um, find his way across the mountain if someone's not over there signaling him or whatever. And just, just kind of have that self-awareness, um, of a hunter and hunters that are trying to film hunt. So it's just, it's, it's a, it definitely complicates things and it's an interesting dynamic. So as is just hunting in a group in general, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, before you traipse into the backcountry with a group of, you know, three or four of your buddies and you think it's just going to be, you know, everyone having a great time sitting there shooting, flinging arrows at deer and killing stuff like, you know, there, there, that's a, that's a complicated dynamic when you got three or four tags all in the same camp and there's only, you know, three basins and four tags. And, um, the problem with it all is we usually don't have unlimited amount of time. And so what I mean by that is, you know, I added it up on this eight or nine day hunt and with three of us in there, basically three of us, the most of the time with tags, I still only ended up going on what I would consider was three legitimate stocks on mule deer. And so that's not a real high chance for uh, room for error, right? If you're only stocking three total stocks on an eight or nine day hunt, because, you know, this time Corey's up and then we're going to film Jason and then, you know, and so on and so forth then you got to, if, you know, you got a one and, you know, you got a, uh, three stocks to get it done. You got to, you got to connect on one of those. And that's, that's tough. Uh, honestly, you know, I would like to be going on two stocks every day, you know, or something like that. So, you know, just knowing where you're at as a, a bow hunter or a hunter in general, uh, what success rates you kind of generally need to seal the deal on a stock and what you're willing, you know, are you willing to go home without, um, a deer because the camera guy was filming your buddy and you aren't going to shoot something if it's not on film. And so your time runs out and you got to go home. So just all, uh, just a little rabbit hole. I went down there, but something to think about the other, um, you know, the other thing that we ran into on this hunt was water, uh, water, 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 water is, king it's gold in the backcountry and especially on a year like this where you can look at snowpack levels um, from this previous winter and they were they were poor or they were below average and it was unlike I've ever seen up in this country in the you know four or five six years or whatever we've been going in there um, where there's normally huge snow banks up on the you know the northeast uh, facing slopes that are uh, shaded most of the day or covered by trees. There was none of that. There was, you know, no, um, no, well, there was, I, I shouldn't say no, there was one, what I would consider a high elevation spring. And it was, you know, a three mile hike one way and a three mile hike back or whatever. Um, and so that is only ma magnified or that, that problems multiplied when you have pack animals, 
Um, if you use them to your advantage, it can be a benefit if you, you know, take four llamas around to water and it's a heck of a trip to get over there. But once you're there, you load all four of them up with, um, you know, eight or 10 gallons of water, which they can, you know, they can basically handle maybe eight or 10 gallons of water each, um, is going to run about, you know, 70, 80 pounds or whatever. Um, then that can make it worth it, uh, to have pack animals. But if, you know, the only water that you have is, you know, a 2000 foot drop invert and the pack animals can't get to it. And that's the easiest water that you have, you know, then you're stuck doing things like we were doing this week where Corey literally threw, filled up a five gallon, uh, bladder along with, you know, all the other stuff that was in his pack and humped it, you know, up what we call the elevator shaft, which is, you know, a solid, you know, maybe 1500,000 to 1500 foot vert, but it's, it's, you know, as straight down as you can get, uh, and still be able to get up and down the hill. And he had to, you know, we had to pack that much water up, you know, so that we could have some and the llamas could get through another day until we could, you know, had time to get them over to water. So just understanding the country that you're heading into and, um, you know, where water is and where water isn't it's uh it's really once you get back there it's it can turn into the only thing that matters real quick um i mentioned that you know three or four days into the hunt jason hiked in um, and he was there for the last maybe five days um you know we i could recap on all the you know the misses and the stocks and the things that went wrong and you know all that kind of stuff but um you know, we, we kind of touched on that and, and we still may be releasing just documented uh, video of kind of, uh, you know, what, what went on, but you know, that, that was, that was basically it. You know, Jason got in there. We, um, you know, we still stocked deer, even though the, the big, uh, the big four point that we're after was, was not there. And so, um, we, we each had our opportunity. That's the funny thing is even though we only had three or four stocks on, on uh, maybe I had three stocks on mule there. Jason probably had less, you know, Jason probably had one or maybe two. Um, Corey probably had the most, maybe three or four. I can't remember, but, um, we all had our opportunities, um, with misses and, um, you know, bad shots and equipment failures and blown stocks and all that kind of stuff. So it was overall, it was a great hunt. Not sure if we'll be putting back in for it. Um, you know, especially me as a resident, it's just tough because there's super high quality tags here in Nevada that aren't, they're not hundred percent backcountry like this hunt is, but they hold a lot bigger deer, you know, and with maybe two to four points, I have a pretty good chance of drawing that as a resident. So it'll be decision time next year. Um, I think that because we we build points in so many other states where it's not like if I don't draw a tag in Nevada next year, I'm not going to go hunting uh, mule deer. And so it makes it a little easier, I think, to just, you know, take a step back and say, Hey, I'm going to build points for a couple of years or, unless I, you know, draw this, this one or two hunts that I'm after. So, um, that was kind of where we were at with the, uh, with the mule deer hunt. Uh, it was really, really cool to see South and, and Larry, uh, hunt in the same country and get to meet Larry, um, had a heck of a time chasing mule deer around. And, and that's why we do it is just, you know, the definition of this hunt, I would say was just humbling. You know, it reminds us that, you know, you can't just show up and, and, uh, you know, expect that it's just going to happen. So, uh, excuses. So I just jotted down a quick little, uh, few notes of, you know, just some, uh, whatever you want to call them, cliche or, uh, excuses that hunters use. And, um, some of these apply to our hunts and some don't, but, um, the first one was, it, it's not all about the kill. Um, <laughs> you know, you hear, uh, that's something that people who never kill anything, uh, say it's, it's, it isn't all about the kill and it's not all about the kill, uh, until you don't kill something. And then, you know, that it's like, man, I would have much rather killed something. <laughs> so, um, Oh, and the next one is, oh, it's, it's not about the inches. You know, that's, that's where people who shoot, um, smaller buck than they think that they should have, or a smaller buck than all their buddies are posting on Instagram or 
all the people that they follow or whatever they um it's not all about the inches it's about the experience uh the other one was um oh i sh i saw this one today i shot the wrong buck <laughs> and you know it it actually happens it it happened to me and i i say that after you know making fun of these excuses that hunters use but you know it literally happened to me i i had two bucks and um anyway one standing in kind of not in front but one above the other and just ended up uh it, this was way back before you know we knew how important range finders were i guess or no my range finder was broke on that hunt that's what happened um, another learning lesson is my, I think my battery had died or my range finder was broke, but, um, range, what I thought the buck was, uh, you know, did the best that I could there, uh, which is how you did it back in the day. You know, there's no, you didn't take time to range way, way back in the day when I very, very first got into this. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, ended up hitting the buck that was right behind him because I was a terrible judge at yardage or whatever, or a terrible shot, but Anyway, saw that one today and thought that was funny. Um, oh, shot the wrong buck. This uh, this buck jumped in front of my my string when I was shooting at the bigger buck. <laughs> so um, uh, too many tags. Oh, the you know the Department of Wildlife has issued too many tags, and that was that actually was kind of the case in my opinion on this hunt. They uh, they doubled the tags from last year, and when we're talking, you know, last year it was in the hundreds, and now it's in the multiple multiple hundreds. Um, you know, that's a, that's a good one for people to use as an excuse is there's too many tags or on the flip side, uh, oh, you know, deer numbers are just down. Deer numbers are down in this area. Uh, it could just be in general because of, you can either, you can go one of two ways. You can either, you can either go with the deer numbers are down because it's a drought and you know, they just don't have the feed. And so they're not making it, or you can say the deer numbers are down because of the winter kill you just got to be careful which climate you're in and use the right excuse that relates to which climate you're in so if you're down in southern nevada you use the drought if you're in you know upper northwest uh, wyoming you use the uh, deer numbers down because of the winter kill so <laughs> a time and a place for each excuse um the other next one oh i only i only have weekends to hunt so this is the guy that um, only chooses to go out for a weekend and then uses that as his excuse. But then, um, you know, a month before or a month after the season, he's on a week and a half long vacation with his, uh, family, just chilling at a hotel in Vegas, doing nothing, sitting around the pool, drinking, uh, beers or whatever. Um, but this is the guy who only, you know, only hunts the weekends and kind of uses that as his excuse. Ah, I didn't have time to get out and get it done. <laughs> so, um, uh, the bucks went nocturnal. This is a classic, right? Oh man. Like, you know, they're just, the bucks are in there, but they won't, what am I supposed to do? They, you know, they won't come out during the day. And so they, all the bucks went nocturnal. That's why I couldn't find anything good to shoot. Uh, oh, the hunters or the hunters blew them out of the basin. Oh, there was the other hunters. They were, you know, they weren't supposed to be where they were. They were traipsing through, you know, my basin. And, you know, this was, this is us pot calling the kettle black on this last hunt because you know there there were literally hunters walking up and down basins that we've never seen <laughs> before and so we were using that one. Oh, the hunters blew them out of the basin uh oh this is a good one some someone someone shot my deer over my head um you know that's been a classic one that's i wouldn't say classic but that's been one that's used in the past um you know i've heard stories of two people stalking a deer at the same time and so that's you know if if basically if there's anyone in your general area when you shoot and you miss or you think that they just shot um this is this is probably more pertinent to rifle hunters but surprisingly it happens with archery hunters too um but you can use the oh, another hunter shot him out from under me or shot him while I was on the stock can you believe that you know they knew I was there I'm sure and <laughs> so someone shot the deer out from under me or over my head uh here's one that was uh you know this is this is a subcategory of just general excuse. The general excuse is, oh, I had an equipment failure. Um, you know, oh, I saw this with a clip from a, you know, one of the well well-known bow hunters in the in the general industry. Um, oh, my sight was off, my this and that. Um, but this actually happened to me. My string stop fell out uh partway through the hunt. And so 
uh, the last stock that I went on, I just kept missing low. I, I, there was my quiver dump that you may have seen on. I, I had a quiver dump at this buck and, you know, he just kept standing there because I don't even think he was anyway. Um, kept, kept missing low and, you know, I'm not sure what effect a string stop being gone from a bow that's been sighted in with a string stop has, but, um, I actually haven't shot it since I got home. But if you have any sort of equipment change or failure, even here's my advice is even if you don't and you're unsuccessful, you'd be smart, uh, maybe on the hike out or before you get back to town where people can see you, you'd be smart to just like, uh, mess something up on your bow, uh, just in case someone asks, you know, for me, like I made sure and got rid of my string stop. So no one knows where, <laughs> where. I'm just kidding. I didn't get rid of my own string stop, but, um, you know, if you're worried about it, just make sure that no one can find it. So if they ask you like, well, prove it that your string stop's gone, you know, you don't pull your bow out and it has it on there. So you have to think that one through, but equipment failure is a classic to go to. And then, um, you know, the, the last one that I'll say here is just kind of an all-inclusive. Oh, I hit him. I hit him and there was no blood. I hit him and my arrow didn't penetrate. I hit him and I hit the front shoulder. Um, I hit him and it was only a flesh wound. And, you know, I hit him. It was, we were on the blood trail and it started raining. If there's any, you know, and if there's any sort of um, moisture in the air in a 10-mile radius, then you could maybe use that. Um, the, the, the blood trails washed out. Um, I hit him and it wasn't fatal, you know, or just anything in general like that. It's, you know, may, maybe get some sympathy, uh, there from people. If you let them know that you actually did hit one and you're a great hunter, but you know, like all oh, the mother nature wiped out the blood trail or, or something like that. So <laughs> anyway, hopefully you enjoyed those. Um, you know, it's kind of, kind of just a, uh, for fun excuses that we use. And like I said, a lot of those apply to us. So some lessons that I learned on this particular hunt. Um, first of all, backcountry hunting is, is definitely becoming more popular, or at least it seems like it is here. And again, this is going to maybe sound like the excuses category <laughs> all over again, but, um, man, backcountry hunting just seems to be in the last five or, you know, 10 years, maybe, or whatever, um, becoming more popular. Um, you know, and that, and, and it's great. You just got to know how to, you know, how to pivot and how to, uh, adjust around it. You know, if you're going to a spot like we have been, and all of a sudden more and more people are backcountry hunting 10 miles deep. I mean, we're like 11 miles deep and we're seeing guys just all over. And that's awesome. Um, because you just have to tip your cap to them, uh, because you know what, they have every right to be back there too. And they're working just as hard, if not harder than us. And, but it's just, you know, it's a lesson that we have to start picking up on that, you know, maybe, um, maybe it's not, sometimes it's not 10 miles plus deep that you have to go, you know, maybe the sweet spot is two miles or four miles or something like that. You know, this, these kind of overlooked areas where, where, uh, you know, the extreme guys are going past five miles, but the people who are, you know, just purebred road hunters, like, like the, uh, the classic shirts, uh, says, uh, they're only going one to two miles. And so maybe that four miles is a sweet spot. I don't know, but you know, that was definitely a lesson that we learned this on this hunt. Uh, I mentioned this before, but altitude sickness is a real thing. Uh, frankly, after watching Nick go through that, I can tell you, he's one of the tougher guys I've ever met. He just, um, you know, it would hit him. He would throw up, he'd puke, probably not healthy, but it just gave himself, you know, five or 10 minutes, took in a bunch of water and then he would just, you know, we would kind of keep trekking on nice and slow. And um, if he needed to stop, he would stop. Luckily, as we were hiking in, we were um, acclimating to the altitude as we kind of went in because we would, you know, we didn't go all the way to 10,000 feet. Um, we, we actually kind of went up, you know, halfway camped, went up close to where we were going to be, maybe 9,000 feet. And then you drop back off and kind of, so we went up, down, up, down for quite a while and got some acclimation there, but it's a real thing. And, you know, I know there's pills. I don't know what else guys can do. Um, cause again, I've never experienced it, but you know, uh, you just got to know if it's, you know, if it's something that's going to affect you or you got to be ready for it. Um, uh, maybe you guys have some better ideas of how to deal with it other than, you know, the, the, is it Dramamine or Dromamine pills or whatever you can take altitude sickness pills. And then other than just, 
you know, being in the country or being at that, those elevations throughout the summer. Um, you know, but when you live on say the, the West coast or where I live or something, um, well, where I live, I've got mountains, you know, that I can hike or whatever, but, um, I would just not want to find that out on a hunt. And so whatever you have to do pre-scouting trips where you're just getting in the country and, you know, find that out earlier in the summer before you're on the hunt. Cause it, it didn't ruin our hunt, but I could see how it could ruin some people's hunts. Um, I learned that water is gold on this trip. You know, like, like I mentioned before, um, especially on dry years like this. Um, I learned that pack animals, um, can come at a price or there's a trade-off, you know? And so you have to think about that. Everyone, you know, loves to look at the, the llamas and the, you know, the goats and pack horses or whatever. Um, but the fact is it's, it complicates things you know, and it's, it's going to come at a price one way or the other, either it's going to come at a literal price out of your checkbook and you're going to pay someone to pack you in, or it's going to come at a price of your time and some frustration. Um, but you know, pack animals aren't for everyone. Sometimes I wonder if it wouldn't just be better. Um, you know, if you're the guy that just doesn't want to deal with, um, doesn't want to deal with the extra trade-off that you're going to deal with of just, you know, keep and camp on your back. The problem you run into is if you're 10 miles deep and you got to get a mule deer out, um, all by yourself, or especially elk hunting where, you know, you might be miles deep and it's just tough to, especially in the hot weather and all that kind of stuff. So just something to think about. Um, I learned on this hunt, I learned about the applications of the new Swarovski BTX, uh, spotter. And what I mean by that is, you know, we thought that BTX would just be the only thing you wanted to look through in this big, wide open backcountry. The fact is, like, there's still an application. If you run in the BTX, um, it's 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 zoomed in enough that even on you know the lower uh, six, you know, that with the 65 uh, body, it's still enough that there's an application for a pair of 15s on a tripod. That's really what I learned is the sweet spot with that BTX. In my opinion is having like a pair of 15s in this country on a tripod to just scan and pick up deer. Right. And so that's where it worked the best. Cause you can cover a lot more ground, wider field of view, um, faster. And so I would pick up, Oh, there's a few bucks over here. And then I would relay that to whoever's on the BTX you know, and say, Hey, those bucks are right here in this little draw or whatever. And then they can zoom in on them and tell me what they are, where I can't, you know, I can't necessarily tell if they're way out there. I can't tell if they are bucks or not bucks, um, or if they're bucks and they're still out of range. I can't tell exactly how big they are with the 15s. And so that's really where those, that BTX shines. Um, aside from the guy who is just going to sit for hours and I mean hours and hours and hours and pick us pick apart a hillside um, that that's what that BTX is is made for you know if you follow David Long and his four phases of glassing this this would be where I'd pull out um, uh, the BTX is like phase three and definitely phase four where you know you're literally just that's a weird, uh, I don't know what that weird clicking sound is or why it's uh, doing that, but um, maybe you guys can't hear it. But anyway, when you're really just picking apart the shadows and the crevices and underneath the tree branches and you're trying to, you're, you're not even trying to see a body of a deer, you know, at 645 in the morning when they're still feeding, you're, you know, it's, 2.30 in the afternoon and you're bored and you're just trying to pick up um, a velvet tip of a velvet antler shifting in the shadow behind four pine trees um, or you're trying to pick up the flicker of an ear you know at 1500 yards across a, a basin in the shadow or something like that that's where that btx shines the last couple things that i learned um south cox is still is is a legend um, you know, I, I mentioned with him on the podcast the other day, I, I almost hinted like, Hey, like, you know, you're on your way to becoming a legend South. Well, 
he he really proved to me on this last hunt too that like you know he had the same amount of hunters bugging him and he's doing it with a stick bow and he's been doing this for years and years and years and he's he just got it done again and like it just reminds you that the legends they just get it done i think and so i want to apologize to south and let him know that um I, I know that he's, he is a living, he's literally a legend already. So the last lesson that I learned, Larry Jones still knows how to heckle people at, I think he's 76 years old and man, we were hiking in and we had, we had started up the trail before them. So I'm backing up a little bit here um, to tell this story about Larry, but we um, showed up before a little bit before South to the trailhead. And so we had our llamas ready to go and headed up the trail. Um, but you know, like a mile into it, we kind of got, uh, slowed down with, with, uh, the altitude sickness. And so South and Larry and their camera guy and, and their four llamas come and they end up passing us on the trail. And part of the problem, you know, that was, you know, Nick had the altitude sickness, um, but then at the same time, South, two of the llamas that South had were female llamas because he's, which he can run in his string because his other, his two llamas that he had, that he owns are gilded males that aren't intact. And so they don't have any problem packing females. Well, all four of our packers are intact uh, males. And so <laughs> South passes us uh, with, with these two females, uh, at the very same time that Nick's uh, kind of struggling with altitude sickness. And so the, the Packer llamas that we have are starting to come unglued because they, they get a whiff of those uh, females and they, you know, they typical guy, they lose their head. And so we've got llamas doing circles around each other and I'm trying to calm them down and Nick's throwing up and like all at the same time, like simultaneously, Larry Jones and South Cox pass us on the trail. And Larry says something like, uh, you guys, you guys got everything under control. And I said, yeah, we're, you know, we've got everything under control. We're doing, we're, we're doing all right. And, <laughs> and Larry, Larry just without even hesitating goes, well, it doesn't look like it. You guys look like a circus. <laughs> and so I, I turned to my my uh, buddy Corey and I turned to Nick afterwards as they passed us and I was like, "Did we just get heckled by Larry Jones, the Larry the Legend Jones?" <laughs> so, anyway, Larry Jones has still got it and uh, and he'll let you know when when you look like you're uh, you know about to come undone. So that was that was uh, something that I'll I'll never forget. So. Um, Last thing I want to touch on, and then I'll just briefly talk about this antelope hunt coming up, is some of the gear. Um, the first note that I made is my crispy Nevadas, the uninsulated crispy Nevada boots, um, they still are the best boot that I've ever worn. I'm not going to say the best boot ever, so calm down, Frank or uh, Aaron Snyder, if you guys listen, I doubt you guys listen to this uh, second-rate podcast, uh, but... I'm not going to say they're the best boot ever because I haven't worn all the boots out there, but they're the best boot that I've ever worn, um, especially for early season. And they just proved that this hunt, absolutely no problems. They just work perfectly. So uh, the next thing, speaking of, of Aaron and Frank at Kafaru, is I had a chance to finally run um, their 25-degree uh, Kafaru body bag, and it's now my my favorite perfect, uh, early season bag. It obviously, uh, without, without saying this goes without saying, but it works better than my zero degree bag that I've been using for years. Um, I still, even in this warmer, even in this weather, I still had to unzip the 25 degree bag and just use it as kind of a, a quasi quilt, if you will. Um, but much, much more enjoyable experience than the zero degree bag. So it will definitely be going with me on any, you know, August or maybe early September bow hunts or just hunts in general. And the last thing gear wise is, and this isn't really gear as much as it's, uh, it's food, but all backcountry freeze dried food is not created equal. Um, man, there was, 
I won't I won't name the brand, um, but I've I've had a couple problems with uh, the taste of a certain uh, brand of food that I tried, and you know the problem nowadays is like you got all these food uh, freeze dried food companies coming out, and there's a fine line between you know being like organic and all this grass fed and like all natural and no preservatives and like this is real food and the problem is like if it tastes like crap then it tastes like crap you know and then on the other side you got mountain house and backpackers pantry whatever and yeah it might be like a sodium preservative bomb or you know but at the end of the day like if i can't stomach it then i don't like it you know either way and so anyway just test your backcountry uh, food maybe before uh, you get in the backcountry. It wasn't a big deal because I always pack one extra day of food. Uh, then I think I'm going to be there. So I had an extra meal and it also um, wasn't a problem because I only packed one uh, dinner from this specific uh, line of our brand of uh, freeze dried food. And so it was just like a one little thing and you know i was able to supplement it with another backup dinner that i had but anyway that's basically it if we think of something else um you know we'll mention it on another podcast if you guys have any questions about the nevada hunt or gear or any of uh you know if you have questions on how to use the excuses that i rattled off and what application to use each one in uh, please, you know, reach out, send an email, and we'll explain that better so that you don't look like an idiot. <laughs> um, last thing, today, literally today, I'm headed, uh, in fact, by the time this uh, goes live on Monday, we'll already be back uh, because I'm just headed out for a quick weekend hunt of my Rifle Nevada antelope hunt. And Man, the definition, the first thing I want to say, the definition of these rifle antelope hunts, if you've never had one, is they're just, they're just flat out fun. Um, I'll be the first to admit they're not backcountry, typically. There are a few places you can backcountry hunt antelope, I'm sure, in the West, but this is probably not one of them. Um, it's just fun. You spend time BSing with your buddies. You spend time, a lot of time glassing, a lot of time driving. Um, it's a rifle hunt and I don't care what anyone says, but there's nothing more liberating than getting your butt handed to you for 10 days, uh, or nine days, I should say on a, a, a backcountry mule deer hunt and then picking up a rifle on the next hunt and, you know, smoking an antelope from 300 yards or whatever. Um, it just, it's a fun way to put meat in the freezer. It's a fun way to enjoy hunting. It's a fun way to just get out of the mountains get away from, um, work and, you know, the hustle bustle of, of uh, life. And so I, uh, along those same lines, I had to, I sighted in a new rifle. I've got my, uh, looking at my Weatherby, uh, Accumark in the six, five, 300 that I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about. Um, sucker's a hot rod, man. I'll tell you that sighting that thing in, um, these hot rod rifles, uh, they definitely, uh, I'm not used to it. Uh, my family's just been a, you know, 280 Remington or, you know, 30 out six type family. Um, and so my dad and grandpa never got too, too much into these, um, kind of hot rod calibers. Uh, they're, they're sensitive. They are, they, uh, you can tell that, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta know how to shoot them and you gotta know what, uh, ammunition to put down the barrel. Um, but man, I'm excited. Perfect. I think it's a perfect, um, well, it's a perfect round or load for, for really anything, but specifically antelope, such a flat shooter. Um, I'm going with the, uh, 140 grain, uh, A-frame bullet because it's a range certified, uh, AccuMark and that's the range certified load that Weatherby, uh, tested that would shoot in it, uh, the best. And, you know, I was able to, uh, just, just me personally shooting off of, uh, kind of a piss poor shooting bench that, you know, is just a homemade little deal, you know, but I was able to shoot a, you know, a MOA group, uh, you know, an inch group at a hundred or whatever, and a couple inch group at 200 yards basically. And I sighted it in at 200. So I don't have the turret set or anything like that. Corey's coming and he's pretty good with that, uh, type of stuff, but 
um, it's just going to be a fun, fun hunt. And hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully get a, a shot under, you know, three or 400 yards. So last thing is just judging antelope. Um, this, this thing is, this hunt's got me a little, um, a little bit thinking about how, you know, how to judge antelope. And I'll be the first to admit, I've had one other antelope hunt in my life. I was young. And so it was one of those shoot the first legal antelope uh, that got within range. Um, but on this one, I'm like, oh man, I want to, you know, I kind of would like to shop around a little bit. And my dad killed an antelope a few years back. It's maybe, I can't remember if it's a 13 or 14 inch type antelope, just a good buck. And, um, so I just want to shoot one. Uh, don't tell him actually I did tell him, so I don't care, but I just want to shoot one a little bit bigger than his. (laughs) And so anyway, I've been doing just, just like completely ignorant to how to uh, field judge antelope, but I just doing like, I'm looking for maybe one that's uh, diggers, hopefully I can find one where the diggers, meaning the prongs start, um, they don't come off the, the main uh, sheet there until above the ears. I was told that the ears, uh, on average, maybe stand about six inches, um, up. And so you're looking, I'm kind of looking for that, um, mass that, you know, hopefully, just kind of stands out with the mass. I'm looking for, um, you know, the diggers that, that don't start until above the ear. Um, and then I'm going to do a, I'm going to try to make sure I get a look from both sides. You know, the big thing with antelope and especially the, the length of the, of the horn is seeing it from, from the front and seeing it from the side, because, you know, every once in a while they'll, they'll do that hay hook, uh, back, so to speak, where when you're looking at them head on, it might look like a 12 inch go. And then when they turn sideways, you realize there's, you know, an extra three inches cause it, it hay hooked straight back and you couldn't tell that looking on. So I'm going to, I'm going to do my best just to, to see it from at least the, the front and the side before I, uh, take a shot and then just go from there and have fun. Um, like I said, I really don't know how to score antelope. I, I know how the how the scoring works. I just don't know how to field judge them and tell you what an antelope scores. And so just looking to have fun. That's it. Want to say thank you for following along. We're about 50 something minutes, which is a little longer than I thought. Honestly, I should know that about myself though. When I get going about hunting, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll blabber on, but I'm glad I kept it under an hour. Um, really just want to say good luck to you, uh, in the middle of your seasons right now, whatever you've got going on. Uh, maybe you're out here out West and you've already put something on the ground, please, uh, send us, send it, uh, tag us in your photos or whatever. Just love to follow along with guys that follow along with us. Um, you know, so that we can, uh, see how you're doing and what you're putting down, or maybe you're in the Midwest and you don't have any hunts coming up for a month or two. Uh, maybe you're a, you know, Western rifle hunter and you don't have hunts coming up for a month or two, but either way, just good luck. Um, thank you guys so much for following along. Um, God loves you. I love you and uh, good luck this season. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to the finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends, but the best thing you can do leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.